So how many of you guys have heard of the uh, Mandela Effect? Raise your hand if you've heard of the Mandela Effect. Okay, yeah, so there's a few of you. So if you're not familiar, the Mandela Effect is named after Nelson Mandela. How, how many of you have heard of Nelson, Nelson Mandela before? Okay, all right. So Nelson Mandela, famous um, South African president. He was a president in the mid to late 90s, all right? And he uh, did a lot of work to end racism there and fight racism in South Africa. However, many people claim that he died in prison in the 1980s. Like, there's a large amount of people that say they remember his funeral, they remember the speech that his wife gave after he died in prison, they remember the riots that started because of his death in prison. So when he ran for president in the 90s, there were a lot of people saying, what is going on? Nelson Mandela is dead. In fact, he wasn't dead. He lived through prison and became a president, and he didn't die until 2013, actually. And there are many things that have been misremembered or misquoted by the masses. And these are the things now that have fallen under the umbrella of the Mandela effect. Things that we think happened or think were said, but were not actually said or done. And these examples this morning, I think, are going to break your brain a little bit. Okay? Of the Mandela effect. Because I was also disturbed by what I thought was true. Okay. First example is a classic cartoon series, The Looney Tunes, right? Who doesn't know The Looney Tunes? Many of you have probably watched The Looney Tunes, right? People think that it's spelled that way, but it's not. It's Looney Tunes, like music, which, okay, this one might not be super surprising for those of you who know how to spell, but for me, I was like, it's Looney Tunes, like cartoons, duh, not like Looney music. Right? That makes way more sense. Okay? It should be Looney Tunes. O-O-N-S. But it's not. Okay, next one here is uh, how many of you guys ever watched this show growing up or read the book The Berenstein Bears? Right? Okay, yeah. I, I, had, I had no cable. And uh, the only free TV that was shot over the airwaves had a lot of Berenstein Bears on it. I watched hundreds of episodes of The Berenstein Bears. And I read their books. Except... They're not the Berenstain Bears. They're the Berenstain Bears. What? Yeah. Who says Berenstain Bears? No one says Berenstain Bears. It's Berenstain Bears, okay? If you say differently, you're wrong. But you're not, actually. It's Berenstain. I don't even like saying it. It doesn't sound right. Okay, next one of one of these misremembered things. One of the most repeated lines from any movie... So Darth Vader from Star Wars, he's standing over Luke, and Luke is facing his uh, mortal enemy, right? And they're in this dialogue, and what does Darth Vader say? Luke, I am your father, right? He doesn't actually say that. He never says that. Never once in the movie does he say, Luke, I am your father. No. He actually says, no, I am your father. And then that's when Luke's face gets all weird and he goes, No, no, it's not true. It's impossible. <laughs> but it's true and it is possible. <laughs> so I can't, re- I, I can't tell you the number of times my dad, when I was little, would put his hands over his face and go, oh, Luke, I am your father. 
you know, and like, everybody say like, Josiah, I am your, like, being a dad, and like quoting, like hundreds of times, I'm sure he's quoted that in his life, and every time he was wrong, every time, and not only that, culturally, people have misquoted this, like in spoofs of the movie, and like writings, things, they always think, he said, Luke, I am your father, but he never says that, not even once. Okay, do you guys know who this is? Who is that? The Monopoly guy. Wrong. He doesn't have a monocle. That's right. No monocle on Monopoly man, all right? You go home and look at your box. He has never, in the history of the franchise, had a monocle. You're confusing him with the peanut guy. The planter's peanut guy, he has a monocle, not the Monopoly guy. The, the entire franchise that rips families apart. You've stared at the box hundreds of times as you sat there crying at the dinner table, thinking, when can I stop playing this game? <laughs> He's never had a monocle, okay? Never once. All right, which one do you guys, which of these logos do you think is correct? Raise your hand if you think the one on the left is correct for the Fruit of the Loom. Raise your hand if you think the one on the right is correct. You're wrong. It never once has had a cornucopia. That cornucopia has never, ever once shown up behind the Fruit of the Limb logo. However, people who have copied it, people who have misdrawn it, has been perpetuated in culture that there's a cornucopia. But no, the Fruit of the Limb logo is a sad, cornucopia-less fruit lump. Okay? That's it. That's all you get with the Fruit of the Limb logo. You thought you knew what was true, but you didn't. Okay, this one messed me up. All right, so Mr. Rogers. Who watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Raise your hand if you've ever seen it. All right. If you've watched it, you know it. I want you to sing the opening line with me. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. Wrong. I've always sang, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. He never says that. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. This neighborhood. He says this. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. Sounds wrong. Mr. Rogers is wrong. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And in fact, I thought it was a wonderful day in the neighborhood until I was doing research on it this week. I was double wrong. Yeah, I can't believe. How many, how many times did I hear that song and still think it's a wonderful day in the neighborhood? Never once did I get it right. Okay, the last one here. How many of you guys have ever watched the show I Love Lucy? Okay, so really popular in the 50s. Had six seasons. I think it was 51, 57. Like an iconic, classic show, right? And the main character, Ricky Ricardo, the husband over there, was famous for using the word splain, right? In place of explain or explaining, right? So one of the most popular lines, famous lines from the TV show you probably know is Lucy, you have some explaining to do. He never says it. Six seasons, hundreds of episodes. Never once does he say, Lucy, you have some explaining to do. I mean, this show came out 40 years before I was born, and I've heard people quote that. Lucy, you have some explaining to do, but never once does he say it. He says things close to that. And in various orders, but he never actually puts those words in that order. So every time you've heard someone say it, they're making up a quote from a show that never existed. 
It's crazy how generations of people can get something so simple wrong, right? And the problem is we repeat what we hear, and once something becomes popular in the culture, it can be hard to uncover the truth because at some point something just becomes common knowledge, right? It's just everybody knows that. Everybody knows, Luke, I am your father. Why would we put effort into deep diving into what a TV show specifically said, going back and like watching all episodes and make sure we're not crazy? Like, why would we put effort in that? Why would we put effort into discovering whether the Monopoly man has a monocle, right? That doesn't make much sense. It literally makes no difference to our lives if Darth Vader said, Luke, I'm your father, or no, I am your father. Right? It doesn't make a difference. But what does matter is what we believe the Bible says. And if people can get famous TV shows wrong, things that they love and listen to and watch over and over again, they can get movies wrong, they can get the theme song to Mr. Rogers wrong, it isn't far-fetched to think that people misquote or wrongly assign words to the Bible, too. Right? So some examples. Uh, Our common culture believes that Satan is red with a pointy tail and horns, and he lives in hell, and that's where he resides, and he, and he has flames all around him. He's the god of the underworld, right? Never once does the Bible say that, right? That's a Greek and Roman idea brought into our culture. Never once is Satan put in hell as the god of the underworld. The only time he's mentioned in hell, or rather the lake of fire, is at the end of the times when he's going to be destroyed. And many people think that Adam and Eve ate an apple in the Garden of Eden, but they didn't. They could have. It doesn't say specifically if it was an apple or not. My dad, personally, thinks that it was a kiwi because he thinks the weird hairy skin on a kiwi is wrong. So he likes to imagine them eating a kiwi. So the next time you are imagining Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit, feel free to imagine your least favorite hanging fruit as they eat it and say that's exactly why the mango is the worst fruit in the world or the pomegranate or whatever it is. I know that Blessings over there really likes mangoes. Maybe they taste better in Malawi. But here, I don't like them. Another example is seven deadly sins, right? How popular are seven deadly sins? Many people think there's like a list in the Bible somewhere. Nope, there's the Ten Commandments, there's twelve disciples, there's four books of the Gospel. But never once are the seven deadly sins listed out. It actually wasn't until 550 AD that Pope Gregory I was like, okay, here are some things we should avoid. And then, (laughs) now it's a list that everybody knows. And there are many examples that are very close to what the Bible says, such as the lion shall lie down with the lamb. You're not going to find that quote in the Bible. It's close, but it's not there. Money is the root of all evil. Not actually correct either. Pride goes before the fall. Not a direct quote. God won't give you more than you can handle. Right? That's not there either. And there are other quotes and ideas that aren't even in the Bible. They're just like things that people attribute to the Bible, such as God moves in mysterious ways. Or follow the golden rule. Right? Jesus teaches what we would consider the golden rule, but he never actually calls it the golden rule in Scripture. Right? People are like, oh yeah, the golden rule is definitely in the Bible. No, it never says that. Cleanliness is next to godliness. The famous line your grandma uses when she wants you to make your bed. Right? Not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves, not in the Bible. This too shall pass, not in there. Love the sinner, hate the sin, guess what? Not in the Bible. And there are many other examples of what the people think the Bible says when it actually doesn't. And you can see how many 
people attribute these things to the Bible that aren't actually true because they sound like common knowledge, right? They just sound correct. And this might, believe, or might lead non-believers and even some faithful followers to think untrue things about who God is and what he said or what the Bible actually teaches. And there are some serious problems that can be uh, derived from this misunderstanding or misquotation. The idea for this series that we're starting is to understand what the Bible actually says in light of what common culture thinks it means. So welcome to the Bible Doesn't Say That series, okay? We're going to go through some of these things. This morning, even Nene, as we were getting ready, he's like, I was like, what are you, like, getting dressed for a concert or something? Like, coming in here in shorts and a t-shirt? I think it's fine. I'm not really upset about it. I was just poking fun at him. He's like, come as you are. I was like, guess what? Doesn't say that either. So the first phrase we're going to look at this morning, I'm glad you're here, Nene. It's so fun to pick on you. It makes, yeah, it makes my sermons a lot easier. So the first phrase we're going to look at this morning is, God won't give you more than you can handle. Sounds right. But is it? Now, you might be thinking, hey, Josiah, hold on. I've read my Bible. It says that in 1 Corinthians 10, right? I've, I've seen it. Go ahead and turn there with me. Let's look. Let's see what it says. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 13, or 11 through 13. Now, leading up to this passage, Paul is talking about the Israelites and the, the failures they had in the wilderness and the sins that they fell into, how they were idolaters and drunkards and they committed sexual immorality and the like. And he's warning people about falling into sin. So let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 13. Now these things happened, talking about what the Israelites did. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but which is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So here, Paul is talking about temptation and sin specifically. How God doesn't allow us to face overwhelming temptation. And if we look for it, God is going to provide a way out of that temptation, right? So God's not going to let us just like face something that's so overwhelming that we can't help but fall into sin. He's always going to give us a way out. This chapter clearly is dealing with sin and not all life situations generally, right? So the common phrase that floats around, God won't give you more than you can handle, has a different feeling than God won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. Right? Those sound different. They have different meanings. The first makes it sound like you're never going to run into a situation that you can't overcome by yourself. The second makes it sound like God is providing a way out of sin for us if we're willing to take it, which I think is very biblical. So think about the phrase. God won't give you more than you can handle. Think about how detrimental that could be, just for a second. Imagine you're going through a really difficult season of life to the point where you don't think you can handle your problems on your own. You're, you've reached your breaking point. 
And in your conversation, you're like really sharing your feelings with your friend and your well-meaning friend says, that sounds really tough. But remember, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. What? How would that make you feel? Right? Because you are feeling crushed. You feel, you're feeling overwhelmed. And maybe now you feel like you aren't a good enough Christian. Right? That maybe somehow you're deficient. Maybe you think you aren't able to overcome your circumstances because you have fallen short in faith. Maybe it makes you feel bitter towards God who isn't answering your prayers for help because he knows you can do it all by yourself. Right? Think about how detrimental it could be, especially to a non-believer who doesn't have a deep understanding of God and Scripture to just say something like that. Oh yeah, God never gives us anything that we can't handle. Now, I think it is well-meaning. I'm not saying the people that say this are malicious and they're trying to do something bad by any means. But let's think about it. What is the benefit of that phrase? What does it do for someone? And is it even true? And to be fair, there's a chance that just because something isn't a direct quote from Scripture, it can still be an implicit teaching, right? So I, I think that's fair. We could try to find some passages that support this teaching that God won't give us more than we can handle. But when I was doing research... I kind of found the exact opposite, <laughs> ironically and unfortunate for us, <laughs> and fortunate as we will see. I want to give you a perfect example, all the way back in Judges. Turn with me to Judges chapter 6 and 8 if you want to look there with me. So back in Judges chapter 6 and 8, we find that the Midian and the Amalekites, Israel's neighbors, continued over and over again to ransack Israel for their food. And it got to the point where it was just an unbearable amount of oppression from these foreign armies. And on top of that, Israel at this point has opted to worship the Baals and the Asherah instead of God. So things were really bad in Israel at this point. They were really bad. And when Israel had enough, they finally, they cried out to God and said, God, we can't do this anymore. We need help. So God sends Gideon, who is a judge and a prophet of God. And God charges Gideon with defeating the Midian army, liberating Israel, and establishing correct worship once again. That's what God wants Gideon to do to help his people. All right, so look at Judges chapter 8, 10 real quick. Not to spoil it too much here, but uh, you see the numbers. There were 15,000 men remaining, and then... 120,000 were fallen. So what we know, don't read too much because this kind of spoils the story, but flip back to chapter 6. Okay. What we know is that the Midian army had 135,000 men in it. All right? It's a very large army. And at this point, Israel isn't too strong. They're weak. Let's see what God does. Look at Judges chapter 7. Excuse me. Let's look at verse 1 through 3 of chapter 7. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, he got a new name after he tore down the altar to Baal. So that is Gideon, and all these people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was to the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, These people who are with you are too many for me to give Gideon into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, 
Proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 people remained. So the army of Israel to start out was 32,000, right? Which is not great against 135,000 people. So God decided to whittle down the army so that the people would know that it wasn't them, it wasn't their power, it wasn't their strategy, but rather it was God who was responsible for this victory. He wanted to make sure that everybody knew. Now at the beginning, Israel's army, 35,000, was 23% the size of the Midian army, which is not good odds, but if you played your cards right and you did some strategy really well, there's a chance you could squeak out that victory. All right? So God decides to take the numbers down to 10,000. Now the army is just 7.4% the size of the Midian army. Odds, not good. But we're not done yet. God's like, mm, still too many people. Let's go ahead and do another uh, examination of these people. So look at verse 5. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. So the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you. I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into their hands. So let all the other people go, each to his own home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his own tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So now Israel is fighting with an army that is just 0.2% the size of the Midian army. How do you think you would have felt as one of those 300 men? Would you have been comforted? Gideon walks up to you. You see, you're at the top of the hill and you see 135,000 people and all their tents and camels. It says the camels were uncountable, right? And Gideon just walks up to you and puts his hand on your shoulder. You're like, don't worry, God's not going to give you more than you can handle, right? You're like, well, excuse me. I can't handle this, okay? I am way out of my depths here. God specifically designed the situation so that they knew they couldn't handle it on their own. And guess what happens? God takes care of the problem. And a miraculous feat that God performs, these 300 men, they blow their trumpets and they smash some pots, and then God throws the Midian army into confusion. They turn on one another, and in one single night, the Midian army goes from 135,000 to 15,000, just like that. And then from there, the Midian army is pushed out of Israel. They, they chase after them, they kill their leaders. And Israel enjoys 40 years of peace and correct worship under Gideon. And the story of Gideon is just one example of where the circumstances of the people were beyond their ability to handle it. Clearly beyond their ability to handle it. So if you stop and think about it, it's not just Gideon, but God has called many people in Scripture beyond what they can handle. Do you remember when God called Moses, one man, to free the Israelites from the most powerful nation on the planet? The odds were stacked against him. 
There is no way he could have handled that on his own. There's no way he could have fought the Egyptian army on his own. There's no way he had the resources to feed millions of people every single day in the wilderness. That does not seem like God is calling Moses into a situation that he can handle. And do you remember when the Israelites came over the Jordan River and they came upon the walls of Jericho, the impenetrable walls of Jericho, the people of Israel felt powerless. But guess what? God took care of it. Do you remember when David faced Goliath, the small man fighting an undefeated giant? Those do not seem like manageable situations to me. Or when Elijah was surrounded by the Aramean army and his servant was freaking out because he woke up and they were surrounded by chariots, right? But when Elijah woke up, he's like, you don't know what I know. Let me pray to open your eyes. And all of a sudden, the servant gets it. They're surrounded by angels. Take it to the New Testament. Jesus needed to feed 5,000 people with only a little bit of food. I mean, we could walk through all the miracles of Jesus if we wanted to. The church. The church started... And it was being oppressed by the most powerful government on the planet. Yet it thrived and succeeded. That doesn't sound like manageable situations. And the Jewish leaders wanted them all killed too. It seems to me that God does his best work in impossible situations. And even purposefully places his followers into difficult situations. To prove his power, to prove his faithfulness, and to prove his glory. So does God give us more than we can handle? Yes. Yes, he does. And it seems he does it on purpose, too. What glory would there be for God if everything we did seemed reasonable? God wouldn't then be a God of power and miracles, would he? Now I understand the heart of the phrase, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I understand what it implies. It just might not be the best way of saying it. Maybe instead, we start to use the phrase, God can handle your situation. Right? So, think about that. That's a major point to take away this morning. God can handle your situation. The next time you're talking to someone in a difficult situation, the next time you have the urge to say, oh, don't worry, God won't give you more than you can handle. Instead, say, God is able to get you through this. Because God is able to get us through anything. However, this truth that God can get us through anything does not negate the feelings and pressure that come with hard times. All right? Just because God is able to get us through it doesn't mean that we all of a sudden have rainbow and sunshines and everything is super happy and we don't feel any pressure or anxiety or stress. And we need to remember that. To be sympathetic towards people who are struggling. Right? I think one of the major pitfalls of the phrase, God doesn't give us more than we can handle, I think it sounds a little dismissive. I think that's one of the biggest things that the biggest problem it has, is it brushes off the difficulty of the person that the person is facing, and it makes them feel like, maybe you don't need to worry about this, right? It's not a big deal. Don't worry. You've got this. God's not going to put you in a situation that you can't handle by yourself, which is totally not true because guess what? We fail all the time and we're not perfect and we have limited power. I've run into situations every single day where I'm like, I have no idea what to do. Guess what? God does. Number two, remember that everyone doesn't have the same faith. And by this, I mean not everyone has reached the same level of spiritual maturity as you. 
So sometimes what feels like a crisis to someone, to you might just seem like a manageable situation because they don't have the same experience as you. They're not in the same current mental state as you. They don't have the same trust in God's power as you do. If you've been a Christian your whole life, you've probably seen God do some pretty amazing things. And that leads you to have more trust where someone else might still have to learn that lesson for themselves, right? We're all in different parts of our walk here. The perfect example is Elijah, surrounded by the Aramean army. He wakes up, no big deal. They're just people out there. And we're surrounded by angels. And a servant who doesn't know that is freaking out because they have different experience. They have different amount of knowledge in God and trust, right? But once the servant's eyes are open, guess what? The situation becomes more manageable. So remember that everyone has the same faith as you. Don't minimize someone else. That doesn't help someone. That doesn't help lead them to faith. Now, there is a time for straight talk. There's a time for tough love. But let's make sure that we're leading people closer to God and trust and not further away from him. And the last thing this morning is try to understand what you're saying. <laughs> right? As we pointed out today, there are a lot of common phrases and quotes from the Bible that may not be accurate or as accurate as they could be. And when we speak to someone, especially when we're talking words of faith and who God is and what the Bible says, we need to be very careful what we speak. Now, there's some grace in that for us, right? Because we only know what we know, right? I think it's okay for us to grow and change our minds and to go back later and say, you know what? I thought this at one point, but now I think something differently because of what I read in Scripture. That's totally acceptable. But you should always try to think about what you say before you say it, which I know is hard for some of us. And at the end of the day, here's the truth. There are going to be times, definitely, 100%, there are going to be times where you are in over your head. And the only thing that is going to get you through it is God's love and power. God is a God of the impossible. And then in the midst of difficult situations, as I think sometimes when we see him in unparalleled clarity, we really get to see his power move and work. With God, anything is possible. Please pray with me this morning. God, I thank you for the opportunity to see how you get us through the most difficult things of life. I just pray that you help us remember that the next time we are facing hard times and struggle, that you are able to do anything. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.